spectrum of fitness genres continues to expand. So in this saturated and often overwhelming fitness market, how should you go about attaining a high level of physical and tactical fitness while maximizing your enjoyment and quality of life? FDNY firefighter James Lopez has dedicated his life to answering this question. Lopez joined the FDNY in 1997 and currently is assigned to Rescue Company 2 in Brooklyn. He also serves as a tactical fitness advisor for both Leadership Under Fire and the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative. Jimmy majored in physical education at Hunter College, where he also competed as a collegiate wrestler. He left Hunter to join the FDNY prior to his last semester and finished his degree with Kaplan University in nutrition. Lopez also operates a gym in Staten Island, New York, where he lives with his wife and two children. You are listening to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Patty. It's nice to be here. You're a second-generation firefighter with the FDNY. Did you always aspire to be a firefighter? Growing up, it wasn't on my radar. You know, like, it was something my father and I had two uncles who were also firemen in New York City, and it was something that they did. And looking up to them, you never see yourself in their role as a child looking up to his parent. I wanted to work in fitness and health. So my, when I went to Hunter College, I studied physical education. As you said, I, I left prior to joining the fire department. Uh, before I got on the fire department, I was working as a trainer in downtown Manhattan. And then uh, when Crunch opened up on 59th Street, I took over the personal training there and ran that for a short bit. And uh, it was something that I always wanted to come back to. I saw the camaraderie that existed in the fire department, the challenges they faced as a group, I also saw how much they enjoyed their job, how they, and I realized this is something I wanted to be part of. And later in life, I was reading Tribe by Sebastian Younger, and you had him on your podcast here recently. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the self-determination theory and three things a human needs to be happy. And it's competent in what they do, authentic and connected. And the fire department gives me all three of those things. And they're intrinsic values that lead to me being happy in what I do. So not only are you a second-generation firefighter, but you're a second-generation firefighter in Rescue Company 2. What does it mean to you to work in the same company where your father worked? So my dad was in uh, Rescue 2 from 1972 to 1985. So in 1972, I was three years old. So from three to 16, that's where he worked. And uh, so I kind of grew up going to the summer picnics, the Christmas parties, Mm -hmm. surrounded by these guys. You walked into the firehouse, it always smelled like smoke. He used to tease me as a little boy. I'd smell it and be uh, fearful of it. Uh, but having been familiar with the company in that time, and they were doing quite a bit of fire duty, so they really established their reputation. Uh, it's like a privilege and honor to be of something that be part of something that's greater than myself. Mm-hmm. I feel really connected in this collective effort that spans generations. The names and faces on the wall mean something to me. They're not just anonymous people. No matter the decade. What is expected from Rescue 2 hasn't changed. So whether it's the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the current time, Rescue 2 is expected to do what they're expected to do. And it's a uh, realization that the generation that's there now is carrying on the legacy that they made. And it's something that I'm kind of proud of. Uh, and it's something that we don't assume their skill or their ability. We have to work at it to maintain it. Interesting talking about the differences in generations or the similarities between the generations. Having grown up the son of an FDNY firefighter in the 70s and 80s, the picture of a New York City firefighter today is considerably different than what it was during your childhood in terms of fitness. 
what changes do you think the members of your generation have made to their approach to fitness? So, Patty, this is like a tough question, <laughs> right? And I, I really thought about this. What was the right way to answer it? And I don't want to get into like a comparative mindset where we compare generations and what's better and what's not and who who is better. And so I don't want to go down that road, but I just want to read a quote and then I'll, I'll give you when this was written. The quote goes, it is sad to think that so many people are overlooking the important fact that physical culture is equally as essential as mental training. And now is September 19th, 1881 in the Boston Globe. So this kind of conversation is not a new conversation. It's something that I think the previous generation always wants to look at the next generation and say they're not quite up to par to where they were. Uh, but I'd just like to talk about a couple of things. And I think that the root of this is technology, right? Technology is always a threat to activity. So the more technology, technologically advanced we are, not the lazier we become, but the less we have to do, you know. Uh, and there's a great book out there by Joan Vernicos. It's called Sitting Kills and Movement Heals. And she's like a NASA scientist and she dealt with the effect of gravity on astronauts. And basically what she was saying or what she found was happening is when astronauts go to space, because there is no gravity, their aging accelerates. But the same thing was happening here. And as we become more advanced, we're moving less. So the title of her book is Sitting Kills and Movement Heals, right? So for a 14-day space flight, there's one day of recovery needed for every day in space. And when that spans a longer period, let's say three months, it actually goes up to like two and a half days for every day. Meaning that the generation today is growing up in an environment that let's say they don't have to move and do as much as the previous generations or the generations from the 70s and 80s. In other words, they're not probably not cutting that long. You probably have a service doing it. They has a portable phone. Simple things like you're not getting up to answer a phone. It's always in your hand. So the generation today is faced with this challenge that then I don't think they're as physically active as previous generations were. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that if you look back at that quote I read, in 1881, they were saying the same thing. So it's not a new concept. I think as we evolve, we have to face this, mm -hmm. okay? So, I mean, if you look at Pixar, they have that movie Wally, you know, where everyone's around in a, in a, a motorized chair and, and, the, and the robots do everything. It's not that extreme, but you get the point. There's another really important thing from Sitting Kills that I got, non-exercise thermogenic activity. So basically, it's anything we do during the day that isn't necessarily exercising. And that actually winds up being a greater part of our total body energy expenditure than, let's say, that one hour of exercise we're going to do. So what I'm getting at is I said the generation today may be faced with the fact that they're just not as physically active as, let's say, 30, 40 years ago, just because of how we've evolved as an industrial nation. So the challenge that they're going to face is they're going to have to prioritize movement reprioritize movement. I mean, if we look at gear, you know, um, my father's generation was wearing dungarees and basically raincoats. Mm -hmm. uh, today's generation has bunky gear, bailout ropes. I mean, you can go down the list. They've gotten heavier. Movement has been restricted. So what this generation does have is access to information. I mean, if you look at the FDMY, look at Proby School, uh, they make uh, quite a big effort to educate the probies coming on the job, whether through the mentorship program, look at MPI, uh, the Mental Performance Initiative, the FDMY. They spend a day on tactical fitness, and they're trying to bring that education to the members. But it's a matter of what you do with that education. It's like cooking dinner. You have all these ingredients. It's like, well, how do you combine them to form what you want to make? Mm -hmm. And the challenge, I think, of this generation is they have so much at their 
at their, in their plate as far as information is filtering through what they actually need at this point in time and, and sticking to it. And if you look at a gym model, you know, my father worked out pretty much in the basement. He had his Dan Laurie weights from Brooklyn and he had his little weight room set up. Today, everything's a gym. You know, my dad, I wasn't a member of a gym. And now a lot of people are going to gyms that are led by trainers, let's say the CrossFit model, where their workouts are being laid out for them by a professional trainer. So the approach to training, I think, is much different than was the 70s and 80s, where it might have been a more casual approach, but it worked, you know. And today it seems like it's more structured, but there's a greater need for it, I feel, because the activity level isn't as great as it was 30 years ago. Later on, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit more about how you filter through the information because I think that's important to dissect. But for now, at what point did you realize the necessity of honing your fitness outside of work to support what you do professionally? I mean, being realistically, your first day in probing school, you put the gear on, you see how it feels, you realize this is going to be a challenge. And what you got to realize is that first day of probing school, what you have is really zero knowledge and experience. Your only asset is your physical ability. And for me, it was immediate, you know, and what I like to throw out there is a quote by Neil Donald Walsh, and it's life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. Okay, he was a, uh, the author of Conversations with God. And basically what this means to me is that, and then Stu Smith said it at the most recent MPI, from the moment you wake up, you're breaking your comfort zone. So by setting a activity goal, whether it be some a 5K, half marathon, marathon Ironman, or uh, hiking a difficult trail or climbing a mountain or whatever it may be, that is giving you a goal that's going to make you accountable. And in making you accountable, it's going to make you create daily rituals or habits to achieve that goal. And in doing that, you are learning how to overcome and accomplish things. So I think that if you look at it independently, if you if you do an Ironman, are you going to be a great fireman? I'm not saying that, but I'm saying the discipline to do an Ironman mm-hmm. is going to make you a better fireman. The discipline to climb, uh, you know, a, a couple of friends and I, we do something called Devil's Path every uh, every every fall. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, five of the 35 peaks in the capsules. It's 24 miles, mm-hmm. and we do it in a day. We start very early. It's, it's a tough. It's it's an endurance event, but. Just getting yourself out of that comfort zone and pushing yourself builds that character right. that's going to be necessary to – it gets you used to achieving and overcoming. And I think that's a, a real useful skill uh, as a firefighter. As you're saying all of this, I'm recalling a race that I did a few years ago that you've done in the past. And in my mind, I'm just saying it was a character builder. And yeah. that was running with the devil, yeah. the New Jersey Trail Series. <laughs> and as I told you, my foot is still – my toe is still disfigured from that from about five years ago. For those of you who don't know, the race is a 5K loop on a black diamond ski course in the middle of July. And you sign up for time. So, <laughs> you know, if you sign up for three hours, you're just trying to run that 5K loop as many, as many times, times as you can. can. I just think that in getting to this is fitness is more effective and enjoyable when you're working towards something. Got it. You know, not just going in and plugging away. And, and you know, you can hit, you can kill two birds at one stone. You can use your training to be more effective and have more physical resiliency on your job, but you also couldn't get some enjoyment out of it. And uh, it just builds that mental attitude that precedes everything we do. And I, I like a quote from Stephen Covey from The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You know, habit is the intersection of knowledge, what to do, skill, how to do, and desire, the want to do it. So by reinforcing and setting these goals and achieving them, I think you just, you're just developing that, that achievement mentality, you know? 
Right. And you've touched on the Ironman just now. What other events have you uh, done that? You know, actually one that I I, I really – so the Ironman we did in 2016, we had four guys from the company do it. It was challenging, but I'll be honest with you, I laid out the training as I should do it, so that helped a lot. It wasn't as tough as I thought it would be. I mean, granted, I didn't qualify for Kona or anything like that, but uh, I never felt – I never had to like descend into that pain cave to kind of get through it, you know? But the following year – a young fireman, Andres Bezito, who uh, I actually worked with his father in squad one pre-9-11. His dad was killed on the 11th. Uh, he set up a trip to climb Mount Rainier. Mm-hmm. And and that was great. We went out there for about seven firemen. One of my one of my oldest friends, Tommy DeAndres, was with us. And Tommy's a fireman in squad one. He's older than me and, and fitter than me. So, you know, he lives it. And uh, we just had a great time. The only downside of it was we, we didn't uh, – we weren't able to summit uh, an ice bridge we were supposed to cross collapsed, and the guides kind of couldn't find us another way around. Mm-hmm. And the line of the trip was the mountain has the last word, right. you know. So it's just, uh, but it was it was a great experience. And even without summiting, we hiked up to the highest point. And when the sunrise came up, I'm like, this was worth it right here to look down from the mountain and see what the, the sights. You know, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing was, uh, a plane ride back. Uh, a number of times the pilot told the stewardesses to sit down and put their seatbelts on. And I looked over at Tommy. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, we're in for a bumpy ride. So I don't really like flying, which most people don't, you know? Yeah. You can only control what you can control. Right. And I can't control anything in the air. <laughs> Got it. So you operate Monkey Bar Gym in Staten Island, a space you say is dedicated to returning people to the true meaning of physical culture. What does that mean? So I just want to give a quick background as to how or the path that led me to Monkey Bar Jam. So, you know, after the Trade Center, uh, everybody's schedule kind of got uh, put into overdrive. You know, you had different priorities and working out wasn't my priority at that point. So uh, when I finally was able to start training again, and it was a good year later, um, I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to stick to the same grind that I was used to. So I started looking into uh, different types of training that were out there. And I happened to see an article. I forgot what magazine it was in. But they were highlighting gyms in the country that were training in what at the time was an untraditional manner. And one of them was a place called Monkey Bar Jam out in Wisconsin that was founded by John Hines. And uh, I started to follow them on their website, do their workouts. I really enjoyed them. It seemed to put more of an emphasis on movement. Rather than those, those, you know, chest and back, you know, chest and tries, bias and back, like that traditional routine. And uh, I really liked it. I, I felt like it was, it was what I was looking for. And having that training background and my kids were at this point starting to get a little older, I said, Hey, man, this is a perfect opportunity to seek John out, go through a certification with him and, uh, open up an affiliation with him back on Staten Island. And that's kind of what led me to that. Uh, he was a really great mentor for me at the time. And, uh, it was the beginning of my journey there. So if we talk about physical culture, I'll explain mm-hmm. how that term came across to me. So there's a book out there called Mr. America by Mark Adams, and it's about about Bernard McFadden. So he was around the turn of the century, 18, uh, late 1800s, 1900s, and he was like the inspiration for uh, Joe Weider and Jack Lane. Like this guy was around uh, before them. Eugene Sandow was, was out there at that time, and he was big on physical culture. And one of his famous quotes were, weakness is a crime, don't be a criminal, you know? And he was, he, he wound up settling in 
just northeast and opening up uh, training facilities and magazines. He was one of the first people. He made a, for, a small fortune in fitness magazines. Uh, Charles Atlas, you know, that cartoon. You always see the guy kicking sand on the beach. He was a mentor to him, mm-hmm. uh, if I have the name right. Anyway, that's where I first learned about physical culture. And what it basically was was a health and strength training movement that originated in the 19th century. It was uh, coming from Germany, England, and the U.S., and ironically, getting back to the first quote that we started the podcast with, it came from a desire to help the sedentary white-collar workers who were accumulating diseases of affluence. You know, same conversation we're having kind of right now. It's just mm-hmm. over 100 years ago, right? And uh, they came up with uh, – the physical culture movement was coming up with exercise systems that they were taking from dance, gymnastics, combat sports, military training, and they were forming uh, – written systems of training. You know, you'd find this in military academies and there were public and private gymnasiums actually opening up. Actually, the first YMCA opened up in Boston in 1851. And so this culture was to get people moving and exercising again. And how my interpretation of that is with my clients is, you know, too often we grow up and, you know, it's like glory days from Bruce Springsteen. You're talking about things you did 20, 30 years ago. I don't want that from people I train. I want the people I train to get themselves into shape and get fit and create memories today and tomorrow Mm -hmm. so that they're talking about what they're going to do next week, not what they did 10 years ago. So it's just this attitude of not just simply exercising to look great in that bikini. It's exercising with purpose to achieve and do more with your life. And that's my interpretation of it. Yeah. You delineate between vanity and performance, right? Like actually we have no mirrors in my place. So it's, it's about moving better Move them often. Like uh, Greg Cook says, move well and then move often. And that's kind of the goal with my clients. Excellent. We talked about this. There's a wealth of uh, information and material out there related to health and wellness. Now I'm going to ask you, how have you learned to navigate through the noise and settle on sound performance enhancing information? So I spent the last 22 years being a professional fireman and honing my skills in that. For me to think that when I started this endeavor 10 years ago that I'm going to recreate everything is foolish. There's plenty of people in the field who are very smart, who have dedicated their lives to the physical culture, right? Mm -hmm. So it was my job to kind of find them. And what I would base it on is it'd have to be somebody who would walk the walk. So not just sit back and tell you what to do. Someone who was telling you what to do, but they were doing it themselves and they were achieving that longevity. So I, I kind of would be, that would be my benchmark. And it would be two things, you know, being in the Northeast, we have access to people come here and teach all the time, the seminars. And I would find things that I was interested in and I would just go and I would fast track my relearning or my education by going right to the source and learning from them. And John Hines was the start of it for me, but then it continued, you know, and, uh, I also would try to read as much as I can. And you had Io Posting, the Cubs hitting coach. Mm-hmm. He visited Rescue 2 prior to coming in for the podcast. And I asked him a question. I'm like, you're a big league hitting coach. You're working with some of the best athletes in their sport in the world. What do you do to get better at what you do teaching them? And his answer was, I read everything. And not necessarily just on the topic of what you're trying to learn on. I mean, you can learn from anything. And you know, you might buy a book and there might be three points in that book that you're useful, but then that makes it worth it. You know, you don't have to buy into the entire structure of the book or, or the content of the book, just what you can take and apply. 
you know, and that's kind of what I did. It was a learning process. And the benefit of having a gym meant that I could learn something and take it back to the gym and experiment with my clients and see not only if it was working, but how I have to teach it to them. Mm. You know, because many times if you have really relative important information, even though you know the value in it, the challenge is making them see the value in it. So I hope they don't be offended by this, but I had to treat them like a, almost like a sick dog and stick the medicine inside the food so they mm-hmm. could barely see it, but they were eating it. Mm-hmm. And then it eventually would sink in and it would work, mm-hmm. you know? So it was a trial and error, but it was also a trial and error with me going to uh, the absolute best people I could find. You know, again, being in the Northeast, you have a lot of options around here. What are some of the most transformational pieces of knowledge you've acquired over the course of your career? Well, I would say that one of the biggest things is that when you look at training and fitness, there's needs and wants. And very often, most people go by what they want, not necessarily what they need. And so in other words, what does your body actually need to be efficient as opposed to what you want to do? You know, do you want to train your strengths or do you want to address your weaknesses? You know, uh, do you want to train to look great in that, in that bathing suit or you want to train to look to be able to perform well at your occupation and gain that longevity. So it's like I couldn't narrow that down to one thing, but the the biggest growth I found was starting to focus more on movement quality, things such as mobility, flexibility, uh, realizing that there's one, more than one way to train an aspect of strength. And I started to get big with kettlebells, you know, varying what we're doing so that we're not constantly putting that same repetitive stimulus on the body and by varying it, you're kind of periodizing it so that the body kind of is not necessarily getting beat up all the time. So it was just it was just finding ways to bring movement or make movement the uh, the, the most important aspect of our training over my training. And it, it can't it's not necessarily one person; it's numerous people. You know, mm-hmm. you have obviously studied breathing with Dr. Belisa Vranich. What have you taken away from so? One thing with fitness is I find that we we mess up the basics, like these basic drives, you know, how we eat, our, how poorly we move or our lack of movement, how we're breathing. And I know later we're going to talk about how we're sleeping, which is the foundation for all this. So if you have these basic biological, biological drives, we kind of, in modern society, are kind of getting them wrong. And you can just look at the health of us as a nation and realize there's something bigger going on. But Dr. Belisa with breathe is one of those basic drives. It's one of those things that by nature of being alive, you're breathing and people kind of take that for granted, thinking that they're doing it fine and not having this basic understanding of how or we're supposed to breathe in what style or manner. And I learned about breathing from a initial seminar with a guy named Steve Maxwell. He's an older gentleman, super fit. The information I got from that summer, I started my journey. You know, that was dealing with more of like Russian Sistema or Oxygen Advantage by McCowan. And uh, I learned a lot of information from that. Trying to decipher it and put it into a package that was teachable was a bigger challenge. And I happened to hear Belisa on a podcast with Mark Devine. And she had that nice, measurable, teachable package that I kind of was looking for. And again... She's based out of New York. She was doing a, a, a certification like two months from that point, mm-hmm. signed up for it, went to it, started to improve my knowledge and understanding of the mechanics of her breath and how it impacts us mentally and physically. Breathing is a tremendous component 
with health and fitness, you know, how well we're oxygenating our body. And in the modern day, we are being we are being bombarded with stimulus. You know, our our sympathetic nervous system is being overworked. This is so much going on, and breathing gives us access to that. Uh, many of us are breathing in a manner or style that's inefficient, and that would be from Dr. Belisa's term, a vertical breath, or other people would call it a clavicular breath, where you're inhaling and getting taller, and that's kind of uh, stimulating that sympathetic nervous system that nice horizontal breath that makes full use of the diaphragm is a 360 degree breath and not stimulating that parasympathetic nervous system and just that basic concept and teaching that to people can go a long way because there's a lot of other things going on in addition to that simple explanation that will benefit their health physically and mentally and i did get to take her breathing class and you were there right. as one of the instructors so thank you for what you <laughs> Did for me. Unlike contemporaries in the military and pro sport, firefighters and fire officers continue to perform physically rigorous work well past their early uh, and mid 40s, sometimes into their mid 60s. How challenging is this? And of those you've seen do it well, what was their approach to fitness? Firemen face uh, the challenge of having to do their job for 20, 30 years. Uh, if they're lucky, if they're fortunate, they don't get injured, you know? And we have to look at how most of us have learned how to train. And most of us, I learned how to train in a competitive sport. Uh, and we have to realize that that model won't necessarily work over a span of 20, 30 years. Meaning that if I train like I did at 20 or 18, that does not work at 50, which I'll be next month. And uh, so we've got to have like an adaptable, evolving mindset to understand that. Okay. Um, I think for senior firemen, officers and firemen alike, we start out our career and you might have a certain why as to what you did. And Start With Why by Simon Sinek is a great book that really dives into that. But you have to understand that that might change over the course of a career. You know, if you're a young fireman, the enthusiasm or the newness of the job and the ideals you might have entering may work at that point. But now as a senior fireman, you know, you may be doing your job for different reasons. And I don't want to make that misinterpreted, but my motivation for getting the job done is, of course, to help people. But it's also the guys that I'm riding with, the guys I'm working with. It's that bond we share of that we, we feel like we can accomplish anything. Um, so you got to like stay connected to that. And, and as time goes on, you're going to have peaks and valleys, you know, could be marriages, divorces, kids, you're going to have ups and downs. And it's that why that you got to rely on and fall back on that keeps you motivated. In our careers, we have to also understand, I talked about this earlier, is it's not going to be about what we want all the time. It's going to be what we need at that point of our life. Like, what do we need? So, like, earlier in our career, maybe something like mobility and flexibility isn't quite as important. So, if you look at a young fireman, they have those physical abilities, like I said earlier. They need to develop that experience. Well, senior firemen, it's the opposite. They've got a wealth of experience. Mm -hmm. But now they got to really work hard at that physical aspect of their job so that they can stay a productive member or they can still have value to their unit. I've been kind of lucky in that I've worked with to, uh, guys my entire career in every company I w was in, there was examples of that. But in Rescue 2, there's two specific guys. One was Danny Murphy, who's the lieutenant, 
and uh, Dwayne Wood is a fireman. And uh, Murph has since retired, and Woody's still in the company. And the reason I, I have to point these two guys out is I've worked with Woody for 15 years. I've never seen him not do something every single tour to address his fitness. You know, so he didn't sit back. He he made he makes the conscious decision that he's going to keep himself in the game by his actions, not thoughts, not like Barstool Bravado, by his actions. Mm-hmm. And Murph's the same way. I mean, example with Murph would be, you know, going into the summer, he was a bigger guy. He knew he'd have to lose a little weight to deal with the heat. He would make that commitment and do it. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's the epitome of a, a tactical professional. You know, you know, like it or not, we can we can get as uh, mental as we want about the job. You have to have the vessel to carry it out, and if you don't, you're not going to be that effective. And if your fitness level isn't where it should be, your perception of effort, your perception of the environment may not be as accurate as the environment's presenting. You know, and I like to look at there's uh, things that matter. And things that you can control. So if we take those, make them two circles and we overlap them just a little bit, you know, so there's things that matter and we have some control over. Mm-hmm. And that's where we need to put our focus. So that could be something like tactics, you know. But for what our conversation, you need to own your fitness because that's completely up to you. And it's in your power to do that. And there's no excuse to not be ready operationally because you just didn't do the work. And I think... Going through your career, I, I'm not saying it's not going to be challenging. I'm not going to say there's going to be a valley, but feel the valley and make sure you get out of it, you know, and get and climb out of it, you know, and getting back to setting those uh, goals with your fitness of activities can help with that, you know. So talking about longevity here, you speak a lot about recovery and the necessity of sleep in career fields that don't allow for that due to operational tempo, how do you recommend adapting to and thriving in these environments? So I think the first thing is is you got to make people in these environments aware of just how important it is. I mean, sleep is something that tends to have like this bravado about it. Like I slept five hours last night or I slept four and a half and like it's a chesty type of thing. So I, I like to use two examples from political figures that everyone's going to know, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, right? Two people who claim to get five hours of sleep a night and both people acquired Alzheimer's at the end of their lives, you know? And they're saying that there's a lot of research and studies out there saying that if you're getting, if you're not getting seven and a half to eight hours of sleep, you're not giving your body an optimal chance to recover. You know, within sleep, we go through sleep cycles, and a sleep cycle will contain slow wave deep sleep along with rapid eye movement or REM sleep in each cycle. And we'll have numerous throughout the night. Different things are going on in these cycles. And that slow wave uh, deep sleep, the body is trying to be anabolic and repair. You know, the brain cells are, are in unison, you know, and we get into a point where we body will try to release testosterone and growth hormone and recovery occurs in that rapid eye movement or REM sleep, it's where all our creativity comes from, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I never realized just quite how important this was. It's it's really the foundation of our health. You know, if we wake up, we're going through like almost low-level brain damage as we progress through the day. And just like if we were going out for a run and we go through low-level muscle damage. And then at night, that's our ability to clean the streets in a sense, meaning that the street sweepers can come out and metabolic waste in your brain can kind of get cleaned. 
And if we short, shorten that and shortcut that, we're leaving waste accumulating there and the streets don't flow. And that's that, that communication within your brain. Not to mention that uh, modal learning is reinforced while we sleep. I mean, this is a tremendous amount of benefits to sleep. So making guys aware of just how important it is, is the first step. Now, because of shift work, you obviously you don't have say on how much sleep you can get working it overnight. But what you do have say in is what you're going to do the next day. You know, what you do have say is going into the night turf, it's possible to try to take like a power nap, knowing that you're going to possibly have a very busy night. So try to like get ahead of the game. So you push back that that point where you that recycle rate hits where your mental and physical ability starts to decline and uh, making guys aware of that is the first step. Like I look at it since I've kind of educated myself on it. What I look at my week, if I look at my week with training I don't necessarily look at it as just laying out my training and doing it. I look at what what parts of the week offer me a better opportunity to recover just due to my schedule, work schedule. And then on those days, maybe that's where I'm going to ask my body to do more because I know I can get to bed early that night. I can get to bed consistent that night. It's not like you're coming off a 24 or a night tour that you run around and you're going to like punish yourself for workout only to go back to work the next night. It's, it's like a uh, – you're having a, a negative effect on your body where you think it's positive. Something I want to point out is that it's challenging. It is challenging. <laughs> it is challenging. So look at it like this, Patty. You know, how long did it take you to, to screw it up? Is it five years, 10 years, 15 years? You don't fix it in a day. You're not going to fix it in a week. It's gonna, you're going to have to work at it. And there's a lot of re- recovery devices out there mm-hmm. that you can take that will kind of monitor your sleep and give you some feedback on it. Some of them are kind of expensive. But if you value that or if you're a techie, it might be something that you can use to kind of uh, just see how you're doing, you know, and if you can improve upon it. And then you also can just throw the technology away and see how you're feeling. Are you waking up and feeling tired or are you waking up feeling ready to go? Is your first thing to reach for a cup of coffee or is it to start to get, get, get together for what you have to do that day? A lot of valuable things that you shared with us so far today. How have the human performance skills that you use professionally doubled over to your family life? I know you and your wife are raising two kids who embrace competitive athletic endeavors. So when I go to something, no matter what it is, I look for the value on many different levels. So I'm going to look for value in what I do professionally with my JMM clients. I'm going to look at the value with work at the FDNY. But I also look at what I can take and bring to my kids. And I look at it as if it took me till I reached 49 years old to learn about the importance of sleep. Well, if I can put that in their heads at 13 and 16, where does that take them in their life? So my daughter's, uh, I would say she's like a, a high level dancer. She dances in school, uh, LaGuardia school, performing arts in Manhattan. And my son's in eighth grade and, uh, he's working pretty hard with his baseball to get his skills up. And he's, he's really achieving that. So, one thing that I've taken from uh, previous MPIs that I've sit through was uh, routines. You know, like develop routines with them. Not just letting success be chance, but control what you can control so that you can have more predictability over your outcome. And life is sport. Dr. Jonathan Fader. Dr. Jonathan Fader. we had on the podcast. My daughter, like three or four years ago, she's at a dance competition and that was on her, uh, you know, the nightstand. 
Uh, she read the book and she applied it and, and she has like a real specific routine. And my son's got the same thing. So he has a routine for batting. She has a routine for prepping for an event. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never had that at 13 or 16. So where does that take them in their life? So I, I look for the value, not just for myself, but for my family. Excellent. Your wellness journey obviously did not begin with leadership under fire, but how has being part of this team impacted you? With leadership under fire, you know, we just had the national conference. You're hearing from people that I never would have heard from. You know, we were talking about it just earlier. You know, we had uh, Coleman Ruaz and Dr. Preston, Dr. Klein. Preston Klein from Mission Critical Team Institute. And those guys were great. Mm-hmm. You know, they were throwing stuff out that uh, just made sense from, you know, Dr. Preston Klein was the academia and Coleman Ruiz was the the operated, you know, the real world experience and that combination, just what you're learning. And it it is incredible. I would never have access to that. never would have had access to Jonathan Fader, you know, and everybody else or Colonel David Grossman, you know, and learning that leadership is required in any field. It's not, it's not specific to one, how it's applied or implemented might be different field to field, but there's certainly carryover for every field. And you can learn something from every field, not just the one you're in. So Leadership on the Fire gives people the opportunity to do just that, you know, and take this information, decipher what is valuable to you and implement it into your profession. Uh, and it's just, to me, it's it's a great concept and it's it's a great product. If I wasn't a part of it, I would look to be part of it. Mm-hmm. I have a story that I want to share with listeners. It's a story that I share almost every time I see you because I just, it warms my heart. When I was reporting prior to working with the FDNY, I heard about this gym through my athletic community. And I heard that, you know, this gym was pumping out these incredible athletes who were winning titles across the Northeast. And so I went to the gym and I did a story and it was with you. Fast forward years later, and there you are at the Mental Performance Initiative at the FDNY, and I'm saying, I know him. I knew back then that what was happening was Yeah, I was was shocked because I walked in that room, and I was the first time I was going to have to stand up in front of my peers and talk and peers that I work with. So my mind was everywhere when I heard your voice and you introduced yourself. It was kind of like a reassuring common thing for me. You know, like it was like, you know, like Fader says, it was like the pitching coach grabbing your arm to bring you back to reality. So like it leveled you out. So that was pretty cool, you know? And it validated me because I thought, you know, back then I thought this is great information that people can use it to develop themselves and to be sitting with you here now, being able to share even more That's, and seeing how you've evolved over the years. I appreciate really that. really great. Man. So I know we just scratched the surface here today. I'm sure we're going to have you on the show again. Is there anything you want to leave with listeners with now? I just want to – I mentioned David Grossman, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, and he has a quote that resonates with me. And I, I want to leave with two, with that quote and then just kind of like my own take. So he has this quote and it goes like this. If you knew you would be in a life and death situation at some point in the near future, what would you be doing today to prepare for it? You know, it, and that's a very powerful statement. Uh, complacency kills and it's a dangerous thing, especially in professions that are dangerous environments. And, our training should really never let us down. And matter of fact, if you go to the academy, there's a quote that says, and it's been up there for years, let no man's ghost come back to say that they're training and let them down. 
and that's it's very important and for a young firefighter or a, a young person in a first responder career or really any type of uh, dynamic environment it's something you've you've got to understand about your profession uh and i would just like to say that you know our bodies are governed by science and we have limits so we have to have that adaptive mindset in regards to our training you know what worked for us at 24 isn't might not work for us at 48 we got to be conscious of that be aware of that and be willing to grow and change our opinion or our belief structure you know like and that adaptability is essential to to longevity i think that's a great way to wrap up today thank you so much for being here all right patty thank you support is provided in part by conway shield conway shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast listeners can receive a 10% discount site-wide using the code L-U-F, more at conwayshield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.